you have your Bible, please open it to the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And find chapter 2. If you gave your very favorite thing that you own or the most prized possession that you have to somebody else, what would that be? For grandparents and parents among us, what is it that we most hope to leave to our children? And for those of you who are young, all the kids among us, good news, today's sermon is not only, but certainly especially for you. I've come today with what I believe is a God-given, Word of God-produced burden for our young people. I love how the Lord works. If you were in this room an hour before this service began, you would have heard a number of testimonies during our adult grow Bible study time, and you would have heard many people talk about God's work among the young people. You would have heard other people pray for the young people. I just love how the Lord works because I didn't prompt any of them to do that, say that. The Lord just knew that that's the theme we needed, and it's already emerged at least twice in this service before I stood here. And I come with a burden for you. I don't know if you're burdened for your own self. But an old preacher who came to the U.S. from Europe many years ago said, if you won't weep for yourself, I'll weep for you. If you won't be burdened for your own soul, I'll be burdened for you. If you won't be concerned about where you stand with Jesus, I'll be concerned for you. But I'm not only burdened for the young people, I really am, by the grace of God, I believe many of you share this joyful burden with me. I'm burdened for the rest of us who are entrusted by the Lord with the responsibility of commending Christ to the next generation. What are we going to leave for our kids? And what does it matter if it's a bigger anthill that's going to burn down on the last day? What if we give them wood, hay, and stubble that's going to be consumed in the final fire instead of gold, rubies, and precious stones that are going to last forever? Kids, what do you want? I'll tell you what the book of Judges says you want. You want to get out of your parents' house and do it your own way. You can't wait until you're 18 years old and can do what you want without anybody else telling you what to do. That's what you want. And guess what? We were all just like you. We thought that was freedom. So has every generation who's ever lived. You want your mom and dad to stop telling you their stupid rules. You want to be free. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen 
all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Verse 8. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Would you take just a moment? I'm not going to give you long, but God can do more in 10 seconds than you can do in 10 lifetimes. Would you take just a moment by yourself, privately, silently, and pray a real prayer to Jesus? Ask him to speak to you now. Oh God, hear and answer every real prayer that was prayed. And for the people who didn't care enough to ask you to do anything, we all who do care join our hearts together and we assault your throne and we pray especially for them. Hunt down hearts. Chase down those who are running from you. Capture those who think they can get happy apart from Jesus and capture them with the beauty and the glory and the grace and the gospel, bloody gospel love of Jesus. Capture their hearts with your heart. Conquer every one of us with your love. And oh God, I know my emotion doesn't make my prayer any better in your sight but I'm so deeply stirred, I don't know how else to pray it, so together, God, we pray, do not let our kids turn from Jesus. Oh God, raise up a generation of our kids and our kids' kids who could care less what this world says or throws at them, but whose noses are in your book and whose hearts are close to Christ. Do it for Christ's sake, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Verses 6 to 10 is five verses, but it's really the pivot point of the whole book of Judges. There's 21 chapters of bad, and verses 6 to 10 tells you why. It starts with blessing. In the middle, there's great loss, and at the end, there's only burden. Blessing, loss, and burden, first days of God's blessing. This is not our main point. But you got to see the stage. The days of God's blessing. It's verse 6 and 7, when Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. That's a loaded sentence. Verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great work which the Lord had done for Israel. So as long as Joshua and a bunch of other godly leaders were alive, who knew God and saw his mighty work and led the people to follow him, 
all was blessing. This is a picture of life as it was meant to be. I sound so preachy to so many ears whose hearts are not tuned to Christ. I prayed, Lord, let me sound not preachy at all. Real talk. You don't think that's blessing unless Jesus is your greatest treasure. I already know. I was just like you. Ephesians says two times in chapter 2, remember, remember. Remember what you were like before you knew Jesus. I can remember that. I lament. The greatest regret in my life, there is not a close second. Number one, all by itself. I wish I would have given my life to Christ earlier. No doubt about it. If you don't know Jesus, you do not think this is the blessed life. What is the blessed life according to verse 6 and 7? Three things. God's promise, God's glory, God's power. Verse 6, His promise is fulfilled. The sons of Israel went each to His inheritance to possess the land. His inheritance? Who gave them that inheritance? God. The land of promise. Parceled out into 12 territories for the 12 tribes of God's people that he promised them in the patriarchs hundreds of years before, between which were 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt, after which were 40 years of traveling around a desert and living in tents, and now their feet are propped on their ottoman in front of the fireplace, watching their big screen TV and eating the richest affair. Everybody. That's verse 6. That's the enjoyment of God's promise. That's the life you want. If I had the little magic genie bottle and told you you could rub it and get anything you want, this is what you want. You want enough money to not have to worry about money. To do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it, with whoever you want to do it. That's what you want. That's what they had. The enjoyment of God's promise. This is the good life. This is the days of God's blessing. And second, verse 7, it was deeper than the stuff. It was for the glory of the Lord. Do you see that in verse 7? These happy people were doubly happy. They served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Could you imagine living in a place with a bunch of happy people who had all the stuff they wanted, who all were serving Jesus? That's the life you really want. And then verse 7, they not only had the stuff and glorified the Lord, they were the steady recipients of God's power. So they served the Lord, verse 7, and, and, and. They did that not only in the days of Joshua, but also all the elders who had seen what? The great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. God's promises, God's glory, God's power. Sign me up for that. It wasn't too long ago that these very same people, 
We can't say that about a lot of passages, but we can say it about this one. It was not too awful long ago that these very same people had dirty, dusty desert feet and were carrying their own house on their back. It was a tent. Now, they're putting crown molding in their bonus room in the promised land. It's these same people that walked across the dry Jordan Riverbed. And while they're manicuring the lawn, and everybody's grass wins yard of the month, because it's more lush and green than any chemicals today could make it, it was fertilized with milk and honey, they're not impressed with the gifts. They're in love with the giver. They love him. Jesus is sweet to them. They have affections for Christ. They want him. They desire him. They love him. And they have him. The people serve the Lord all the days of Joshua. This is the blessed life. It's what you really want. You may not know you want it. But go try 10,000 other idols. And then come let me know how full you are. They'll leave you more empty than you were before you had them. You'll cannibalize your own soul if you glut yourself on anything but God. These people were happy. They are what you want. They have it. Von Robert said in his summary book of the whole Bible, God's Big Picture, this is the blessed life. God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing. That's what you want. You don't even know you want that if you don't have Him. This is life as it was meant to be. And Joshua is a fascinating person to do a character study of in Scripture. I commend that study to you. You can go back and listen to a few D-minus sermons from a couple years ago from this church. We tried. But one of the reasons Joshua is fascinating is because he's one of the few characters in the entire Bible, not just the Old Testament, with no chinks in his armor. He's fascinating for a lot of reasons. Moses' successor, the one unlike Moses who was permitted to enter the promised land, leading the people across that dry ground of the Jordan Riverbed into Canaan. Joshua saw, I mean like right in front of his face saw, God drive out enemies and give territories to the people of his own possession as their inheritance. And he's fascinating because, as I said, he's one of those few prominent characters in the Old Testament in whom we see almost zero flaw. He wasn't perfect. There's a reason he gets that narrative. Specifically, to give the punchline up front, 
He's a brilliant foreshadowing of Jesus who takes God's children into the land of God's lasting promise. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we not only find Israel experiencing those three things in verse 6 and 7, God's great provision, verse 6, their inheritance, glad-hearted worship, verse 7, serving the Lord, and well acquainted with God's great power, verse 7, they had seen the great work which the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua and the elders who led God's people Young people, are you listening to me? They did not know a theoretical God. Now, don't get hung up on that big word. This is what I mean. They did not know a deaf, dumb, mute deity. They did not know a powerless God. They didn't know a figment of their imagination who never showed up in their life. Theirs was a God of power. They knew Him. What did they see? God's careful with his words. They did see the work of the Lord, but that's not what he said. They saw the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Every last one of them would have been testifying at Joy Week at Grace Church. Oh, hear what the Lord has done for me. They knew a real God, a personal God, who showed up in their life on their doorstep every day. These people literally had to cough the dust out of their lungs as they watched the walls of Jericho fall. It's those people. They lived in the land of promise that only God could have provided for them. God was with them. Not only did He show up, He showed off in front of their eyes. He made himself known. He disclosed himself. He revealed himself. He said, Isaiah 64, Here am I, declares the Lord. When the torrential current of the flooded rivers came to a screeching halt, so that you and a couple hundred thousand of your closest friends could traipse across a dry ground to get to the other side, you have good reason to have a palpable sense that Jehovah is with you. He's at work. He is not a figment of your imagination. He's real. He's more real than anything else you've ever known or seen. He's concrete. He's substantial. He's powerful. He's a person, and they knew him. Verse 6 and 7 are those days of blessing. Life as it was meant to be. God's leaders, Joshua and the elders, it's very important that it doesn't just say Joshua, Joshua and the elders of the company of Israel, those leaders guided God's people to live in God's blessing for God's glory. And I'm here to tell you today with a heart of burden and great joy, I am so not against you. I am so for you. I am so 1st and 2nd Corinthians right now. I am working with you for your joy. This is the life you want. If you want a life of joy, and I already know you do, would you stop drinking sewage water? And putting the straw of your life into the broken cisterns that are going to leave your soul more parched if you drink them. 
more thirsty if you taste them. You want a recipe for gladness? I'm not talking about superficial, nothing goes wrong, everything's hunky-dory. I'm talking about sorrowful and always rejoicing. Do you want joy? you got to go through a deep valley to get there. The valley of the shadow of death. you got to climb yourself off of the two side crosses as the accuser. And you got to join the man who was on the other cross as the believer, but you got to get off of that. you got to get on to the middle cross. And you got to go all the way down into death with Jesus and believe that He, 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 He alone is the life you really want. Let's talk about loss. Days of great blessing, that's verse 6 and 7, and a day, one day, of great loss. Look at verses 8 and 9. Day of great loss. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance, Timnath Harris, the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaosh. It's difficult. I, I just put in so many synonyms. Like, I don't know how y'all do sermon prep, but I use my thesaurus because I'm like, these poor people listen to me say the same words all the time the same way. What's another word for that thing? So I put difficult into my thesaurus. And I got all these words that mean hard. Just put them into your mind. It is difficult to compute the catastrophic effect of verses 8 and 9. It is a day of devastating loss. As I've mentioned, Joshua was Israel's faithful leader through whom God provided His own leadership and direction for His people so that they might know Him, a real God, not an imaginary God, not a figment of their imagination God, not a genie out there, Cheshire cat in the sky, not a make-believe God, the real God. God used that man to help His people to know, worship, and enjoy Him. Life as it was meant to be. The life you really want, God used Joshua to help them have it. And although no one can live your Christian life for you, and having a godly leader does not guarantee that you will be godly. Let me say that again. Having godly leaders does not guarantee you will be godly. Nobody can live your Christian life for you. Enter Judas Iscariot. Few, if any, have walked with Jesus apart from the blessing of God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-teaching, Spirit-filled leaders. Kids, guess who that is? Your mom. Your dad. Your godly, older siblings and relatives. Your church family. Your pastors. Now I want to get real with you young people for a minute. I know a lot of you no, I, I can't say that. Let me, let, me, let me say it exactly how I mean it. I don't know if any of you, but I suspect that at least a few of you think all those people are stupid. And if you're really going to be happy, it's going to come in a few years when you get away from them 
and do it your way. Nobody can live your Christian life for you. Having godly leaders does not guarantee you a godly life. But few, if any, I don't know any. There may be some exceptions to the rule. I've never heard of them. I've never met them. I've never read about them. There may be some. But few, if any, have ever, ever had the life that they really wanted, walk with Jesus, apart from the blessing of God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-teaching, Spirit-filled leaders. For a long time, Israel had known that particular blessing. For at least two generations, these people had Moses and Joshua. Fast forward a thousand plus years, and it was a little church just like this one. Probably smaller than this small church. And their pastors were the Apostle Paul, Timothy, Paul's disciple, and John, Jesus' disciple. That was their first three pastors. It was the church at Ephesus. And Jesus said about that church, they lost their first love. That's what happened to Israel after Joshua died. We're actually told in verses 8 and 9 that Joshua died, but that's the third time we're told that he died. I told you that last week. And it's the third time in as many chapters. He's dead, dead, dead. Chapter 24, verse 29, Joshua died. Judges 1-1, Joshua died. Judges 2-8, Joshua died. Okay, we get the point. Do you think God is stuttering or do you think he's trying to tell us something? You don't even have the ability to lead your own self. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. Do you understand that? You cannot do it. You can't do it. If you get everything you want, you will be more miserable. Unless, of course, what you want is Christ himself. The days of Joshua chapters closed. You can't ask him any more questions. You can't bring your spiritual unsettledness to him anymore. Get some wisdom, some prayer. He's gone. Days of great blessing. Day of great loss. Days of unspeakable burden. Verse 10, this is the main point. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. I told you I have a burden for the young people. I'm not here to lay a burden on the young people. That does not mean that I'm not here to make you sad. In fact, I join the Apostle Paul and say, I would be glad to make you sad. If you get godly sorrow, I do not want you to have worldly sorrow. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't embraced the blessed life, 
I hope you get sad. A 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. If you came trying to listen to this sermon as an endurance test, just so you could walk out and not love Jesus again, I hope you get really disappointed today. Until you get satisfied. The days of great burden. A whole generation. After Joshua and the elders who knew and saw the power of God did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. There's two problems. Maybe you can put the first one together because verse 7 says they knew the great work which he had done for Israel. Verse 10 says they did not know the great work which he had done for Israel. Guess who didn't tell them? So before we lay a burden at the doorstep of the young people, we must reckon with our failure as older people. Age doesn't make anybody godly. There's a lot of kids in this church who know Jesus more than some of the adults. Age doesn't make anybody godly. But if you know him, you have a responsibility to deposit him into the next generation. This is an epic failure of one generation to deposit the knowledge of the Lord into the next. It is catastrophic. That was one of the synonyms in my thesaurus. You cannot overestimate the devastating consequences of withholding Christ from your children. And I don't say that just to parents. I say that to a church. Verse 7 says that before Joshua's generation died, they were marked by having seen the great work which the Lord done for Israel. And verse 10 says the very next generation didn't know him or the work which he had done for Israel. So parents, let's say out loud here in this context what we have said many times in the confines of the walls of our homes, those of us who have kids. We know we can't micromanage our children's belief. You can't make me love Jesus. I can't make you love Jesus. We can't make our kids love Jesus. We know that. But we are commanded to tell them the mighty works of God. That was the failure of Joshua's generation. They knew. They didn't convey. Leviticus says the priest's job Leviticus 10:11 was to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses. That was their job. They didn't do it. What were the parents doing instead of that? Dear Christian men and women among us, it's our job. It's not your pastor's job, it's our job to set Christ before the eyes of the next generation. Maybe they're bored with God. But if they are, it's only because they've never seen the real one. Nobody's more fascinating. Nobody's more alluring. There's nothing and nobody more magnetic than the one who radiates the glory of God, Christ Jesus the Lord. Nobody is more enchanting and dazzling and captivating and mesmerizing 
Nobody's more wonderful and beautiful and awe-inspiring. Nobody will make your jaw drop and heart skip a beat and breath be taken away like Sheba before Solomon than Jesus who said, something greater than Solomon is here. If they're bored with him, it's only, only because they haven't seen him. If you see Jesus, I can promise you one thing. You'll never be the same again. You'll be ruined for lesser things. And when you find yourself turning to the world's cesspool of sin, he'll graciously, lovingly, sweetly tell you, deny yourself. Turn from yourself and find real pleasure. He's not here to steal and kill and destroy your joy. There is somebody who wants to do that. He's here to give you life and he qualifies what kind? Abundant life. He wants you happy, not superficially, substantially deep, abiding, delightedness with God, in God. He wants to set you free from your myopic self-centeredness. That's the thing that's actually making you miserable so that you can join him in his glad God-centered gladness. Maybe they were bored with God. Maybe the parents tried to tell them his mighty works. Maybe they didn't know because they didn't care to listen. Or maybe it's because they've never heard dad exult in him. Maybe it's because mom gets mad when they miss the word in the memory verse for the homeschool assignment. And they think God is a cosmic killjoy. Maybe it's because they haven't heard us recount his wonderful deeds in redemptive history, that's a Bible study, and in our own heart, that's our testimony. The priest and the people of Israel failed to leave the most important gift to their kids. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That might be material in some cases. It wasn't in Jesus' case. And I assure you, he's a good man. You can leave an inheritance that this world can't touch, taste, or feel that outweighs all the gold in the universe if you will give Christ to your kids. It's been said many times, the gospel is always one generation away from extinction. That's what happened in Judges. God kept the faithful remnant. There were some believers. The Lord had some people through the days of the Judges, about 400 years. Not many, but some. A remnant. And the gospel's always like that. In one generation, the work of God in the gospel can thrive, and in the next generation, can look like it's in great jeopardy. The gospel's always one generation away from extinction. If we close our mouths and burn our Bibles, how will those yet to be born know him? So under our first point, this days of burden, uh, sorry, our, our final point, days of burden, I had to begin by laying some responsibility of failure at the doorstep of adults because verse 7 says they knew him. Verse 10 says the next generation didn't. They should have told them. 
All right, kids, I'm done with verse 7. I'm chasing your joy now. It would be wrong to stop at the failure of the generation that did know God because the text doesn't stop there. The problem was not outside the kids, their mom's fault, their dad's fault. It was inside them. So dear young people, listen to Pastor Jordan. I'm coming to you with a burden and it is a broken heart full of love for you. And I say along with your parents, I want to help you stand on their spiritual shoulders. We're not here to push you down, to bludgeon you with spiritual demands. We're here to show you the beauty of Christ. The desire of your soul is going to get eaten from the inside out in a bad way, cannibalized, eviscerated, not good. The desire of your soul is going to be wounded and killed if you feed it anything other than the fullness of Jesus. We do not want you to become a generation like those in the days of Judges. When I said stand on the spiritual shoulders of your parents, what we mean is we want you to go far beyond where we've been able to go in our walk with Jesus. We want you to know Him more, to be more useful in His service. That's what I mean when I say we want you to stand on our shoulders. We want our spiritual ceiling in our generation to be your spiritual floor. You start there and go further and continue to pass along the beauties and the glories of Christ and His goodness and His saving love to the generation after you. So for our final sub-point, it's all for you. I'm asking you to do something now. Stop distracting your neighbor. If you don't want to listen, at least let the person next to you hear. I'm asking you to focus, to dial in whatever you got to do, however hard you got to work. Bring all your energy to these few moments. Do not be too cool for Jesus right now because I assure you, very soon you will not think that's cool. I dare you to give him, not me, him the next few moments of your undivided attention. I have asked a lot of church members this week to pray for this moment of this sermon and to pray for you right now. Are you a verse 10 person? A generation who does not know the Lord. Are you a person of whom it would accurately be said you do not know the work that he has done for his people? <coughs> One commentary said, this means personal experience. They did not know the Lord as their deliverer, their leader, their conqueror. It literally says that in Deuteronomy 11 and 13. They had not shared those wonderful experiences which had been to their fathers the proof of Yahweh's power, the Lord's power, and His jealous love for Israel. They didn't believe God loved them. And because they would not believe His love, They turned to other gods. 
I don't know how well you know your heart, but you do need to know this about your heart. It's a worship factory. If you don't worship Jesus, it does not mean you're not religious. It just means you have another God. You're worshiping now. You worshiped all day yesterday. You're going to worship every day for the rest of your life. That's all you can do. You cannot cease to worship. The only question is, who or what is the object of your praise? Because the people in verse 10 were 20 years old or younger when they entered the promised land. We know that from Numbers chapter 32. I'm talking to you right now. You can fudge the age, but put yourself into the equation if this applies. If you're 20 or younger, listen. I've talked to the older group. Many of us are guilty of sinning the sin, of not conveying to you the wonderful works of God. God help us repent. I've talked to them. It's your turn. I sure hope you'll take the rest of this to heart. Let me ask you young people some soul-searching questions. Don't let them go in one ear and out the other. I'm going to go fast. Young people, if every person in this church and all the people you know who follow Jesus were for some mysterious reason gone tomorrow, death, whatever else, would your walk with Jesus continue? If, hypothetically, all the Christian parents and grandparents in this church die today. Would this church meet next Sunday? If so, would she continue on making much of Jesus? If so, would you be the one to see to it that that happened? Is there a person in your life right now who's younger than 21 years old who stirs your heart to know, love, and follow Jesus. Are you such a person? For all the people God has put in your life, did anybody just think of your name as that person? Have you a pattern of engaging with your peers in spiritually edifying conversation? If so, who initiates those? Do you initiate? Do you bring up? Do you stimulate? Do you start? Do you cultivate interactions about Christ with your friends? If the progress of the gospel in the whole world depended on your generation, would the message of Christ and Him crucified, of His victorious resurrection as the guarantee that God will save whoever hopes in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises, would that message go to the end of the earth if your generation was solely responsible to get the gospel to the far reaches of the earth and, and to the generation yet to be born? Finally, young people, I, I, this is all burden of joy for you. This is all lift the heaviness, import the gladness. This is not against you. This is so for you. If all the lost people that you pray for God to save would miraculously get saved right now, how many people would get saved today? I ask you these questions as an invitation to life. 
as an invitation to true and lasting joy? These are not accusations for how poorly you've done. And I guarantee you, young people or older, anybody who doesn't know Jesus, I guarantee you all the people who know Jesus feel some measure of conviction about those soul-searching questions. But if you don't care about them at all, a la no conviction, I'm really worried for you because there's a gigantic question mark hanging over your salvation. These aren't accusations for how poorly we've all done. On behalf of Jesus, the Lord, I say to you, come to the water and drink. If you're thirsty and you don't have any money, just come. Isaiah 55, with no money, with none of your own goodness and your own effort and your own resources, just come, buy and eat, get wine, get milk without money, without cost. God is the one who said, why do you keep spending your money for that which does not profit? Why do you keep trying to eat what is not bread? Why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? That sounds like somebody who wants you happy. That's precisely the point of Isaiah 55. He goes on to say, listen carefully to me. This is Jesus talking to you. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Oh, I hate God. He just got a bunch of rules. Meanwhile, the real God is the one saying, just come and get happy. Just come get satisfied. I know what you need. I know what you want. I'm the one who made you. You don't have the resources. You can't do it by yourself. Just come. Just come to Jesus. Delight yourself in abundance. Oh man, God just is always all about all these commands. Delight yourself in abundance. That's what you want. God put the book of Judges in the Bible so that you would not repeat its deadly mistakes. By deadly, that's what I mean. The next 19 chapters are awful. They are terrible. The last three chapters are gross. They are stomach-churning. They are nauseating. If you want the way of death, keep being a verse 10 generation. If you want the way of satisfaction and joy, know the God of your fathers. Choose anything else and you will have all you want. And all you ever get will still kill and destroy. So look with me at what we're going to delve into next week. This is, I'm closing. That's the pivot point of the book. Where are we going? We have four more sermons in this series, Lord willing. They'll take us from the middle of verse, uh, chapter 2 to the end of verse 25 of chapter one, uh, 21. Look at verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Those kids who didn't know the Lord, what'd they do? They did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. Verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal. So verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against them. He gave them into the hand of plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them. They could no longer stand before their enemies. Verse 15, Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. 
Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges. They played the harlot, went after other gods, bowed down to them. Verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges, the Lord was with the judges and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Verse 19, but it came about when the judge died, they turned back and acted more corruptly than their fathers, following other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. Verse 22, why is he doing it? In order to test Israel by them. Whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. Verse 23, so the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Do you think God knew the answer to verse 22? In order to test Israel? Do you think God might have known which way it was going to turn out? Of course he did. Some of you are repeating the age-old empty lie. God hadn't been good to me, so why am I going to follow him? Do you know that verse 22 and an abundance of other verses tell you he's actually graciously giving you the test so that you can see your own heart? He already knows. And every time you compound your guilt by saying, see, God isn't good to me. I'm not going to follow him. He's not finding out what's in your heart. He's letting you see what's in your heart. All these years you've been turning from him. He gave you breath last night when you were unconscious in your sleep. He has done you no wrong ever in any way. He has only been good to you. And one day you're going to say, Acts 17, if you come to Jesus, He determined our appointed time and the boundary of our habitation so that we would seek Him. If your life were any different, you would have a least best chance of knowing him. He's ordering your steps so that you will cry out for him and seek him and find him. He's chasing your heart. That's verse 22. Now let your eyes fall on verse 4 of chapter 3. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. Verse 5, the sons of Israel lived among all the pagan people. Verse 6, they took their daughters for themselves as wives, they gave their own daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Verse 7, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. God already knew that was in their heart. Verse 4 said, he let them find out what was in their heart. Guess why you don't love Jesus today? Guess why you don't want to love him and listen to any of the people that do? God is graciously showing you your heart. He's actually loving you by letting you see 
that you are willing to trade everlasting joy for a cheap, plastic, amateur imitation of what will never satisfy you. And if you would knowingly take fool's gold over bliss forevermore, you tell me who's the fool. My one and only application is the gospel. My application is not what you need to do. It's what Christ has done. The New Testament picks up on the book of Joshua and Judges a ton. I'm going to hint at two places in this application. When I say that place is the gospel, I mean what the New Testament said about Judges, what the New Testament said about Joshua. Two places, Hebrews 4, Matthew 11. Hebrews 4, it says, if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken about another day after that in the book of Psalms through David 500 years later, saying, enter my rest. So if Joshua gave them rest, 500 years later, God doesn't need to say, you need some rest. And Hebrews chapter 4 calls Jesus Joshua. It actually is the name Joshua for Jesus. Do you want rest? I already know the answer. You know the answer. Adages get to become adages because a lot of people say them. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Do you want rest? I already know you do. His name is Jesus. That's the way Matthew 11, out of the lips of Jesus, picks up on Joshua. Come to me, that's Isaiah 55 that I read a minute ago, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just come. Don't clean yourself up before you come. Just come. No more excuses. Just come. Just come to Jesus. And he incentivizes it again in Matthew 11. Not only by one time saying, I will give you rest, he doubles down and says, you will find rest for your souls. Sue him. Take him to court. That's the way the old Puritans talked. Take God's word to God's throne and sue him in the court of heaven. You said if I come, you'll give me rest. Here I come. Prove it. Do it. I'm giving you everything right here, right now. You give me the rest you promised because I give you all of me. You know what you'll find? If you walk away without being satisfied in Christ, then you'll be the only person in the history of humanity who said, I regret following Jesus. That's impossible. But how many countless thousands and millions have given the opposite testimony? I got everything the world could offer me, and I was more miserable after I got it than when I started the journey. Do you want that? You know you don't want that. You know you want satisfaction. You know you want delight. You know that. You know you want joy. You're a joy seeker. You're a machine chasing joy. You want to be full. You want to be fed. You want to be loved. 
So when I set my applications to the gospel, here's my last statement. You're so bad. You are so bad that Jesus had to die for you. That's how bad you are. Nothing worse could be said about you. And you're so loved that he was glad to die for you. He wants you more than you want him. He wants you happy in him. Come to Jesus and you'll find rest.